Hello everyone, welcome to No Offense, the Daily Bruins official podcast. My name is Keisha of Cloudy Media, I'm the Daily Bruins opinion editor, and we have a very fun crew with us today. Do you guys all want to go around and introduce yourselves? Hey guys, I'm Abhishek, I'm one of the assistant opinion editors. Hi, I'm Cleo Worcester, I'm one of the opinion columnists for the Daily Bruin. Yes, so we do have a new guest with us today, and we have a very interesting topic to go with it. If you haven't heard, about two weeks or so ago, the UC announced that it was creating a Title IX student advisory board. And Title IX basically governs policy regarding sexual harassment and violence, and just basically work- workplace harassment and violence in general on campus. Um, it's a federally mandated set of policies that applies to any institution that takes money from the federal government. And the UC has been like passing Title IX policies and, and enforcing them through various different offices. Um, at UCLA, the Title IX office sits under the Office of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion. And Jerry Kong and his team of administrators help basically administer Title IX policies. But the Student Advisory Board is a new development. And there seem to be some very interesting things that may come along with it. Clea, do you want to give the rundown about it? Yeah, sure. So the new UC-wide Title IX coordinator, which is Kathleen Salvati, right? Is that her name? She took over in, I think, February of 2017, decided to start this like UC Title IX student advisory board that's essentially got two different representatives from each campus, one undergraduate student and one graduate student. Um, there's an application via like SurveyMonkey or something online. Uh, that opened about two weeks ago and closes at the end of November, which is today, I believe. Um, Yeah, so we're recording this podcast November 30th. Yeah, so basically the application closes today. Yeah, um, and essentially the only information that's been given about what the Student Advisory Board will do is like provide a line of communication between the UC Title IX offices and students on UC campuses. Um, But that's about it. It's been really vague so far. Like the application itself asks students to explain what they'd want to see the like advisory board do in the future and on their campuses. So, yeah, it's kind of the basic rundown. And I believe Kathleen Savati herself said she doesn't know what she wants to do with the board, right? Uh, yeah, in an interview with Kathleen, she basically said there was like not really any framework for what these students would be doing on their individual campuses, and she wasn't really sure what to expect. She said she really wants it to be like student-run, which is awesome, but also there's like no guidelines so far, so we'll see what happens, I guess. But well, I guess I'd like to point out that one of the questions they've asked in that application is they ask students if selected, how would you connect with students and that kind of stuff. So basically. They're kind of interested in what students think, how the board should operate, really. My guess is how this board came about because students have had grievances about the UC's Title IX policies. Cleo pointed this out in a column sure earlier this week. But basically, I mean, you, at locally at UCLA, we saw last year Gabriel Pettigberg, a UCLA history professor, who um, was accused of sexually harass, sexually assaulting, sorry, harassing, I apologize, her sexually harassing two graduate students was still brought back to the university despite a trial that eventually ended up in a settlement. He's still on campus and there was a lot of protest about it in winter quarter when he taught a class. And also abroad in UC land up north, Norman Pattis, uh, a regent who we've talked about several times on, I think once on the show. I'll be shaking. I talked about him once on the show. Let's not get into it. <laughs> yeah, basically. But he's, he's been accused of sexual harassment by former employees at um, Podcast One, which, which he's an executive chairman at. And um, those of his people have also renewed calls of having Pattis resign, um, especially since he's made like sexual de- demeaning remarks and he's been accused of harassment. So there's a lot of like student 
ire when it comes to sexual harassment. And I, my guess is the student advisory board is just sort of to get an idea of the student pulse. Though, to play devil's advocate, a poll could do the same exact thing, albeit you may not get response. So I guess the idea here is to get people who would talk to you as opposed to just some Joe Schmo who would respond to a poll because they can get a free iPad. I guess the purpose is that the, pers- the person individually rather than just like an automated poll send out email to everyone, the person individually can like physically go to people and like develop links and engage with communities. Like, for example, that same question I mentioned earlier asks, how do you contact groups that historically haven't been connected with Title IX policies? Like, that's one of the things they're probably looking for. Yeah, and I, Clay also brought this up in uh, the column she wrote earlier this week about what she thought the advisory board should do. Do you want to give a rundown of sort of what you were arguing? Uh, yeah, so basically I think the student advisory board should kind of serve as like a means of communication like it's supposed to between UC Title IX offices and students. I mean, right now, like a lot of your average students don't really know what's going on in Title IX offices or what sort of policies are being created or even like how they're created. So I think it should provide like some much needed transparency between like how these policies come about, how they're enforced, why they're enforced or why they're made um, between like for students to understand like really what's going on in their campuses and like how these policies that affect them a lot are being put into place. Um, But in order to do that, I also think it's really important that like the people, the representatives on campus are actually engaging with students, I think it would be really easy to just like hold the title and go like tell them what you think the pulse is on campus without actually like doing the research and figuring it out. Um, And because Kathleen herself has said that like there's like everything's up for negotiation. So the amount of like staffing and the amount of support these students will be able to get from the UC office of the president, including like financial support is like completely up for grabs. So there's no reason that they can't be really effective at like dispersing this information and kind of connecting with students. Like they have everything at their disposal in order to do that. But I guess in order to have like the pulse of the students be really representative of what's going on, they have to also be informed. So I think the education has to be like a really huge part of what these students are doing on their campuses. I guess my biggest concern about the advisory board is, namely, it's very short application window period. So window period. Wow. How redundant. Um, like I said, the applications opened up two weeks ago. I want to say November 14th or 16th. And um, they are closing this week. So yeah, it's it was like a basically a two-week window. I don't know who would apply in that time. Wait, hold on, Keisha. It looks like they've changed it, like, really recently, the deadline. So now it says on the website, applications are due by Friday, December 8, 2017, 5 p.m. Interesting, because two days ago, it was November 30th, Thursday, November 30th, at 5 p.m. Eight more days. You know, who knows what will happen between now and then. This, I guess, I guess this, this, this... Even brings up my point even more. Like, who is going to apply in that time? Like, two weeks isn't enough. I don't think eight more. No, who's going to apply in eight more days when finals are around the corner and all your assignments and, and end of the quarter assignments are due as well, right? So if you think about it, like, the biggest part about an advisory board is you want to have diverse representation. Um, when Jerry Kong created the stu- his student advisory board for the Office of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion, applications are open for quite a long time because they wanted to get a diverse set of students. They wanted to get people with different backgrounds so they, they could share their experiences and basically speak to various different, speak, speak from the perspective of various different campus communities. And you want the same thing with Title IX because Title IX basically encompasses almost all walks of life or is incorporated in almost all walks of life, right? Because this is a university and these are people you're dealing with, like the actions you take can be judged by Title, Title IX policies. 
So you want people from various different communities. But if you give two weeks for an application period, in this case, two weeks and eight days, so what, three weeks? To do, to for your application, I'm not really sure how, how much, how, how much, um, how diverse your applica- applicant pool is going to be, especially given that it's midterm season, right? So if this started two weeks ago, it that's like peak midterm season. It's always midterm season. <laughs> Good point. After week three, the floodgates are open. But I, 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 my fear is that it's just going to be the civically minded. So your undergraduate student government, your graduate student government people, and people who will like the nitty gritty policy nuts who read this stuff and live this life, taking in, like taking part in this, but not. The everyday people you would want representing students who ha- who know the student pulse and aren't stuck in Kirkhoff Hall, uh, doing student government things and sort of shut off from the rest of the student community. Well, aren't those guys, aren't those people like kind of equipped to do that? Like they kind of have the experience and links. Th- then again, this this raises the point that the board doesn't really have an idea of what it's going. To- like Kathleen Savati herself said, she doesn't have an idea of what the board's going to do. It's all up for grabs. So. With that being said, it's not necessarily a matter of who's more capable. It's a matter of who's there in the first place. I think the the experiences people bring will will drive what the board does, um, because like Clea said, like this could be they could focus on education, and that could be a big thing when it comes to educating students about policies and just campus members about policies, because that that's a big part of um, Title Nine and ensuring enforcing those policies. Well, yeah, so. I guess one of my other things is like how much can like students, how much do students have to suggest Title IX policy because they've made like pretty comprehensive changes to Title IX policy like over the past years and now it's like it's like pretty decent what they have right now and I guess even the Peterberg thing that that's not really related to Title IX policy that's related to the fact that he's a tenured professor and you say he didn't want to go through all of that so I'm not really sure what students have to suggest. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts about this, Clea? Um, I think, like, mostly what's important is, like, feeling like you have a say in what goes on in your campus. And, like, that's really important to students, especially at UCLA, I think. Like, we're a pretty active student body. Um, I don't think it's necessarily that we'll have, like, a million things to suggest that they might not come to on their own. Like, but I think that it'll move quicker, the progress, because they'll be, like, forced to interact with us students and also, like, see how, I guess, pressing certain issues are when, like, we don't have students in the offices. They don't, like they aren't forced to deal with it unless it becomes like a bigger issue. And there's like protests in classroom, like with the Peterberg case. Um, but even then, like they didn't really react to the students or even interact with the students. So like on a very base level, I think it just like allows us as students to sort of have a way or like a foot in the door with UC Title IX policies. And like, even if we're not making huge changes, like we're having our voices heard, which I think is valuable in and of itself in a way that we haven't been able to do before. Building up on what Clea said, I think the strength of the board will reside in, again, how diverse it is and the experiences people give, mainly because I think this is more of like an information board for UC administrators, since it's basically administrators who write the rules and they can also break the rules to us according to, at least based on what Regent Pattis has been doing, but let's not bring him into this conversation again. Abhishek is shaking his head. But I think it's more of trying to get the student pulse. And if you can get people who like we we've seen high profile cases like what Pattis is doing and what happened to Peterberg, what Peterberg did, but we're not necessarily getting all the instances of sexual harassment or violence in the workplace that aren't reported, right? So the idea here is to get an idea of are the policies conducive to developing like 
an environment that is healthy, a university system that is healthy. And I think getting people on the board who have different experiences and aren't all just from one, I guess, community, one set of people, basically not all from USAC and GSA. Sorry, USAC and GSA, but tough look. Uh, I think if, if, if the board can have that sort of composition, then it'll achieve its what I see its purpose as informing administrators, administrators about the effects of their policies. Um, I don't think they're going to shape policy as much because I, I don't know. I, I there are experts about Title IX, and they have to, the people study these things in graduate school. I don't think an undergrad's going to be able to make that difference, and I don't think one grad student's going to be one grad student from each campus can be able to make that difference either. And I think that's a wrap for this section. So, any closing thoughts? Well, we'll find out in like I guess a few months. Few months, I guess January is when they meet. So we'll see what happens then. Either that, or they'll keep extending the deadline for the application until then. <laughs> Definitely. Every time by one week. <laughs> there we go. We'll be back after a quick break. Imagine this. You walk into Powell Library and you look at your watch and it's 10.57 p.m. You look around and all the tables are full. So you end up finding a table in a dark corner and there are a bunch of ants crawling on the wall, but you don't care. You have an exam to study for. And so you keep studying and, you know, you're, you're feeling the groove. But after a lot of time, the clock has ticked a while. You look and the ants are still crawling on the wall and it's like 1 a.m. and you're really tired. And then you look up and you see a lot of students... Their once erect posture is now just this big hunched back and their eyes are glossing over the page and they're staring at the computer screens and they're squinting and you just see their faces drooping and you, you can barely see and then everything's too bright and you've known at that moment that you've entered the final zone. And that's why you shouldn't go to Powell. I mean, the same thing happens in YRL though, right? YRL is kind of nice. It's nicer than ants. There are no ants I've seen in Powell. I mean, YRL. You just haven't searched hard enough. If you, okay, so if you don't know, we're talking about finals, right? So finals are just around the corner, and I've just now soured the moon in the room, so I apologize. Wow, this podcast is just full of apologies. I'm not really sure. But final season around the corner, and, you know, this gets us all thinking, you know, we all have existential crises about what have we learned over the past 10 weeks? Did, it, did my tuition money actually go to something useful, or was I just sitting around and playing games or watching Netflix all throughout the quarter. But I think there's something a bit more serious about just campus culture when it comes to final exams. Yeah, I think something that's like really prevalent at UCLA is just students not wanting to sleep to seem like they've studied a lot or maybe like attempting to study in the like really late hours of the night, not actually accomplishing anything. Um, and it's kind of worrisome to see like the bags under students' eyes and like the stress just like emanating off of them. It's almost like tangible on campus. See, my problem is that I have a class on aging, and basically one of the lectures was about how stress is harmful for your body, and I'm reading that the other day for my midterm, and I'm getting stressed out reading about how stress is going to kill me, and so it's even more stressful when you're doing that. I think building on Cleo's point, there there is a sort of romanticizing of the sleep-deprived college student who just sacrifices their health just for the safety of... for 
for the safety of their grades, right? So that implies that health is more important than grades. Oh, hmm. So they're forsaking their health. Never underestimate how important the grades are. <laughs> As I was saying, I mean, you even see like UCLA sort of, I guess you could say tacitly supporting this phenomenon, although it's sort of a, an idea of the chicken or the egg. Like, did so for example, YRL and Powell offer twenty four hour library services. I think week ten and finals week. So the question there is like, do you really need a pull an all-nighter to study for your exam like i pulled three all-nighters in yrl i pulled an all-nighter in the daily brewing office i pulled all-nighters in random places i one time pulled an all-nighter in the in hadrick study the day before thanksgiving i have no idea why i did that but whatever i did as i was saying um you know you see ucla providing these services either because students demanded it or because it was sort of they wanted to facilitate that again I'm not going to jump into the chicken to the egg kind of thing but what you see is like if you're pulling an all-nighter for your exam, you're probably not retaining a lot of that. Like, I pulled all-nighters in YRL. I've seen people fall asleep there. I fell asleep there. It was weird. It just it just feels awkward. Like, you're sitting there. The person sitting across from you with the table is just there. And then by 2 a.m. and by 3 a.m., they just feel like a comrade in arms. You're just both, like, it's like you're sitting in the trenches and you're like, we're just going to make it out of here. Even though there's, you could just walk out and just go to sleep. You're not doing anything in the, in the library. So, I... I just feel like the romanticized college student is just, that's it. It's just romanticized, but really it's not that functional. Well, personally, I try to make it a point to get more than four hours of sleep before a final. But usually I find that I get, like, more efficient at my studying as it hits 2 a.m., you know? Like, then it's like, oh, I only have this many more hours left for my final. I have to really go for it right now if I want to get enough sleep, you know? That kind of motivation. It sounds kind of masochistic, but I guess it works. I feel like I do the exact opposite. Like, I always try to get to sleep, like, so early. And I think people criticize me and say it's just because I'm a North Campus major and I don't understand, like, how rough it can be in, like, STEM majors. But, I mean, like, once it gets to a certain point at night, there's just, like, this realization that dawns on you that, like, you're not learning anything. You're not retaining anything. You're probably just chugging coffee for no reason or Red Bull if you're one of those horrible individuals who likes Red Bull but like honestly it's not useful and I think a lot of people are just like trying to one-up their classmates and there's this weird like oh are you ready for the final like I'm not ready for the final and just like stressing each other out to the point that everybody's like staying up to these crazy hours in the middle of the night for no reason and then like waking up for their 9 a.m like final and probably getting way below the average anyways and the curve is saving them in the end but like we're not actually learning anything which I think is really detrimental as students like we're here to learn so, like, maybe there's a pressure on you once it gets to a certain point in the night, but, like, once you walk away out of that test, like, did you actually keep any of the stuff you studied at 3 a.m. in Powell with the ants? No, probably not. Let me stand up for the students who pull all-nighters. Let's say it's 1 a.m. and you've only finished three-fourths of what you need to study. You need to pull an all-nighter to get it done, to learn stuff, to learn something. You need something to go into that final. You don't really have... Too many options there. I would argue you could just go to sleep knowing like you still have a fourth of the test to study for. You wake up and you've got two hours before the exam and you go, oh, crap. Although it's probably some expletive of some sort that I can't say on a podcast because this has to be for because this has to be safe for kids, too. But that happens to me. OK, so Abhishek brings up a good point. Like there have been numerous times when I've had like a 
at least half of the subject matter that I had, hadn't studied. And I went to sleep and I wake up and it's an hour before the exam and I'm sitting there going, should I cram or should I eat breakfast? And I sit there. I think my my philosophy is like, at least it, it depends on the test taker. Some people don't know the subject matter, but they're really good at test taking. So they have to understand the test, like the, the subject matter to do well in the exam. For others, like they can understand the material really well, but they could be horrible test takers. So they need things like sleep and to be aware and whatnot. I'm sort of the latter camp. Like, I can probably wing my way if I'm like wing my way through tests, which I probably shouldn't do, but I wing, wing my way through tests if I'm aware and like not half asleep. But I mean, ask anybody in the daily burn office, and I'm always half asleep. So it's like, I don't know. I it's it's like finals is just a mess for me. It's just like it's just like I jump into a swamp and I get up and it's like, oh, time to go take a shower, and I jump into the swamp again to take a shower. So it's like I'm just it's like it's like jumping into a mess to get out of another mess. Did you end up having breakfast? No. <laughs> so did you end up cramming? Sort of, but the five minutes before the exam? Unfortunate. Yeah, no, finals are a mess for me. Good thing we don't have daily burn production as much during those during that time. Do we have any closing thoughts about finals and sleep deprivation? Um, avoid night, Powell. Go to sleep. It's probably better for you. <laughs> I'd like to quote the people who put on the fire Festival earlier this year let's just do it and be legends man there we go okay folks we'll catch you guys all next week in our next no offense